Bonjour, Tansé. Welcome to Mino Gandegan, the Good Voice Podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. I'm your host, Tim Fontaine. On this episode, we speak with some of the Indigenous folks who have strong ties to their identity. We pose the question, has reconciliation happened within our identities? Has it happened within the lives of these community members? Stick around to find out. Our first guest is Stefan Richard, proud papa, former professional wrestler, radio host at NCIFM, and jovial podcast host of Ever Sick. He travels around performing motivational talks about his struggles with addiction, and he hails from the Saguing First Nation. All right, well, welcome to the Minogondagan podcast. Uh, I have a very special guest with me today. Uh, he is a pro wrestler, uh, he is a comedian, and he is an on-air personality for NCI-FM. I'd love to welcome Stefan Richard to the podcast. Hey! Thanks for coming out today. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You juggle a lot of different identities. What was your wrestler name? Uh, Stefan Epic, or the Epic Don Douglas, yeah. Did you ever find, uh, you know, it difficult, or did you find that you were just uh you just put on different personas as these different people while you're on stage and you had to balance you know a set of different identities yeah so i remember being a wrestler and finding starting to find my personality because you know you you've been on stage as a comedian yeah there's a certain element you have to turn up and turn on in order to interact with an audience Mm -hmm. and then i found that when i found my niche so to speak, as a pro wrestler, I was so insecure in my real life, you know, being a kid of mixed identity, Mm -hmm. that when I found something that I was really good at in in pro wrestling in order to find my personality, I let that personality carry into my real life. And I was kind of like living this weird facade as like a pro wrestling character for (laughs) a few years in my life. But I found that like trying to find that persona was a good way to of what not to do Mm -hmm. in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, not to be arrogant, not to be self-serving, not to be, uh, not to be who I wasn't. Yeah. Until I became a little bit older, and I realized maybe that's not the way I should be living. Like, you know, because of all the insecurities that I had. But now that I'm older and I, I'm not a pro wrestler anymore, I, I was a wrestler for from 2002 to 2015, and during that span, I had taken three years off. So I don't know, do the math. But uh, I learned that when I came out of wrestling, is that maybe wrestling wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. But it kind of helped me get to where I needed to go. So what do you think you're supposed to be doing now? Mm, I, When I was young, um, so my spirit name is uh, Red Thunderbird Flying. And uh, my I got it at a Sundance and my uncle who was at the Sundance told me that the translation, just part of it was that, you know, I have a gift to listen for the thunders. So it means that somebody who is struggling can very easily come to me just because of the person that I am in my spirit somebody can come to me and share their pain or share their share their life story with me if that makes sense mm-hmm. um, so I worked in social services for a really long time mm-hmm. while I was wrestling because wrestling wasn't paying the bills 100% so when I was doing that and then like eventually I got into media right but while I was doing social services it was something that I was very good at and something that I really enjoyed doing once I got out of that and got into the media I started the Ever Sick podcast that I did for almost three years, and I shared people's stories, just like you know my uncle had told me during you know when after I'd gotten my name, is that people could come to me with their stories and help me, or help me help them, or help them help me, mm-hmm. vice versa. So I found that even though like I'm not working in social services, I can still help people with their stories or help people with, you know, whatever kind of issues they have, pain or successes or celebrations. Something that I I guess maybe has kind of been a lifelong uh, theme in 
that I've had. Your kind of own definition of reconciliation. Mm, so I think the theme that a lot of what I've heard throughout my life, just from my family, is that the I don't I don't use this term personally, but the mm-hmm. colonizer population of Canada needs to make up with the First Nations, Métis and Inuit people of Canada. I think that a lot of it has been from the, well, they need to do us right. Mm-hmm. But I think it's my personal opinion that we also need to do us right as Indigenous people. When I think of reconciliation, I don't think that people owe us things, which in some cases I'm sure a lot of people would think they do. But mm-hmm. in my sense is that sure we're owed things and sure we're owed an apology and sure lots have been done wrong to us. But I think there's a point in time where we need to start taking care of us as well. And I think that's a that's a big thing that's happened, especially after residential schools. Like my grandmother and my dad were both in residential school. So mm-hmm. when I look back and I think of all the stuff that they've gone through their life, I, me, I didn't go. I'm the first generation in a number of generations that didn't go to residential school. Mm-hmm. Now I have a child, you know, so we're the first two generations that have kind of a clean slate when it comes to something like that. Yeah. And now when I look back and we can take care of our parents and our grandparents, especially when it comes to the injustices that have been done to them and against them as, as people, it's time now where I can do my part instead of being the child, hearing the stories, I can be the child that's heard the stories and now has done the footwork to help correct it. Like, how would you explain to son about things about like reconciliation, discussing about his own Aboriginal identity? And- so I, he, I'm very open with him because he's mm-hmm. very multicultural. Each one of his grandparents is a different race. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So he's like this weird little United Nations person. <laughs> so, um, he also has like Jewish on his mother's side. Mm. So there's a lot of reconciliation that needs to be done with that history as well. Right. Mm. So when I talk to him just specifically about his indigenous identity, like his grandfather is Ojibwe. I'm Ojibwe. Therefore he's Ojibwe, even though he doesn't have like dark pigmented skin. Even I don't Mm -hmm. like my dad is very dark and I'm very not. Yeah. You know, so I even had that identity crisis when I was a kid. I feel like it's even going to be more so for him, like, especially when he's identifying in a place like Winnipeg, which is so indigenous strong with population, like an indigenous strong population, that it's going to be hard for him to identify. So when I have the conversation with him of simply just being an indigenous person, it's it might be very confusing for him, just like it was for me, you know, Mm -hmm. because I don't look like the, you know, the people who are stereotypically indigenous. But when it comes to like other things like, you know, the residential school or the colonization thing, I'm I can guide him a little bit, but I can't teach him everything. So when I do, you know, I do teach him about his identity. I think that's the most important part is just planting the seeds and letting him kind of discover on his own, because that's what I had to do. That's true. And um, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, uh, indigenous identity um, looks different within anybody as well. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes people, I guess, look at it kind of as like a double-edged sword. Some people are kind of against their own kind of indigenous background, and it's something that they feel, you know, a sense of shame in. There's some people who, you know, find it something that they celebrate, something that they want to push forward. So, um, like, within that bracket, where do you think you fall upon, you know, with your own kind of indigenous identity? Mm, I struggled with it for a lot of mm-hmm. years. Um, I did not grow up with my father in my home. My father lived on the res. He still does. He's, yeah. I'm 31 years old, and he still lives there. He's he lived in the city when my mom and him were together. And then like while she was pregnant, they separated or whatever. And he wasn't in my house. Mm -hmm. So, but my mother is mixed too. Like my mom's mom is indigenous and there was Ojibwe spoke in my home, but just simply because, you know, I was raised with my white grandfather, my mixed mother, you know, I I didn't have a huge grasp on what was 
what my identity was. I was obviously mixed, so that's just the way I saw it. And I didn't bother to learn anything about any of my cultures. I just said, well, I'm just mixed. So I just like, I'm the quote unquote mutt or whatever, (laughs) you know? So when, you know, when I got a little bit older and I started to form a bond with my dad, I wasn't, I wasn't until I was 24 when I really connected with my dad Mm -hmm. and we had a good relationship for, for a few years. And then, but I had learned a little bit from the time I was a teenager, but it wasn't until I was about 24 that my dad had really taken, I don't want to say an interest in me, but like a more of a, a stronger relationship. So when I had that identity crisis, like I mentioned earlier, like I didn't know who I was. So I became this pro wrestler yeah. and then I grabbed onto a, a persona and I just tried to grab onto anything that I felt comfortable in. So when I felt comfortable being a pro wrestler, I took that quote unquote character and I took elements into my real life. Like I was just to be confident enough to walk around day to day you know what I mean because like mm-hmm. when I hung out with my my Caucasian family I didn't really fit in because we were we just didn't see this things the same way and then when I hung out with my indigenous family it was it was the same thing it was like well I'm the white kid yeah you know what I mean so it was really it was a real big uh, I guess crossfire to grow up in and I'm not sure if you've had the same experience but I know that like when I was growing up it was very conflict but now that I'm a little bit older and I have a good relationship with both sides of my family mm-hmm. that I I'm more comfortable in who I am yeah I guess like on my end too like it's just like you're either too native or not native enough you yeah. know in, in those situations and you're just like where do I belong yeah there's no there's no happy medium for for people now more so like in 2018 mm-hmm. and going forward it's it's more accepted but in like 1994 if you're an indigenous child and you're not brown or you're not white yeah you, you don't belong anywhere you know? <laughs> yeah. I was born in 1994, so. <laughs> <laughs> luck of the job. What guys. is that? Yeah. Yeah, luck of the job. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, your personal identity really hard at comedy. You worked really hard at uh, wrestling, and you also worked really hard at uh, you know media. So mm-hmm. with you also your Eversick podcast. Yeah. Is there was there any times that you felt like this was not the path for me, or like, or this was like, how do you gauge how that like? If things feel right or things don't feel right, like how do you gauge that? So when I was wrestling, um, my big dream was to wrestle in Japan. Japan is is kind of the uh, the mecca of pro wrestling, where people go and it's very respected. It's like if you hear a soccer player talk about playing soccer, they want to go to England and they want to go to like bigger parts of Europe, France, Spain, wherever to play soccer because that's where it's pure and that's where it's like everybody loves it. It's the same with pro wrestling in Japan. So. All these years I worked from the time I was I started training as a pro wrestler when I was 13. I started wrestling and traveling when I was 15 years old, which is very, very young. And then by the time I was 23, I made it to Japan. And when I was wrestling in Japan, after I came back, I there was nothing left. There was nothing left to do. I didn't. I, my goal was WWE to a point, mm-hmm. but that was secondary to Japan. So once I got back from Japan, I realized that that was it. And I didn't want to go further to try and get to the WWE so when I came back, I realized maybe I never had a feeling through those years of wrestling where wrestling was what I needed to do. Wrestling was what I wanted to do, yeah, but it was never what I needed to do. So after wrestling, I realized because if you watch pro wrestling and you watch like Hulk Hogan and Hulk Hogan was yeah. really good at interviews and like screaming at the camera and wearing yeah. the championship belt, <laughs> that's the part of wrestling that I was really good at. So I knew that I could talk and I knew that I had a little bit of charisma, a little bit of pizzazz. So when I got out of wrestling, I figured like I got to do something that I enjoy, but I gotta do something that I'm good at. Mm-hmm. And when I found out through wrestling that I was good at talking, not necessarily selling things to people in like a buy this from me sense, but yeah. selling myself. I could sell myself really well. I started doing public speaking and then I started um, 
considering taking like a broadcasting course and I wasn't quite sure. So at the same time, uh, as I applied to a radio broadcasting course, I started a podcast literally at the same time. I think it was like within a week of each other. So I started broadcasting school and I started a podcast. And then by the end of the year, I'd interviewed people in my class and I mm-hmm. interviewed my instructor for my podcast. And she had said, that was the best interview that I've ever done in my career. And she was the like the radio instructor. And she'd interviewed people in, in like for 30 years. Yeah. And she told me, she's like, that's the best interview I've ever done. And I was like, I was like, yeah, maybe I'm onto something. And then at the end of the year when it came, I think I had like maybe 30, 40 episodes of my podcast out already. She wrote in my thing, she said, wherever you go, you're going to be, you're going to be great. Mm-hmm. And like, I figured like maybe that was some kind of um, thing she wrote on everybody's like final reports or yeah. whatever. It's like, so long, you're going to do well, <laughs> best of luck. But after talking to other people in my class, nobody had a comment on their thing. It was just like, congrats, well done, good job, all that. And then she signed it. And then I figured, like I didn't, it wasn't like an ego thing. It was just like, may, you know, maybe I am onto something. Maybe I am onto what I quote unquote need to be or should be. So once I got into, you know, talking, just doing this like, yeah. with you, it's kind of, it, everything felt right. Yeah. And the, all the training through wrestling and all the training through comedy, like being on stage, it led me to somewhere where I was comfortable. And that's just talking because that's really the only gift yeah. I have. I, I'm not good at math. I can't yeah. build things. You have a good yapper, you know? <laughs> yeah. I can talk. I can, yeah. I can BS people real yeah. well. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people on the other end, too, where they are struggling to find things that they want to do career-wise. And, you know, that's a big part of, you know, somebody's, like, identity. What, what advice would you give to somebody, you know, who is struggling to, you know, find something that feels like that it fits for them career-wise? Uh, when I was like, I'll bring it back again to when I was wrestling, when I was wrestling, I thought through the whole time when I was in the thick of it, that if, if I didn't have wrestling, who would I be? Like I would have nothing. Mm -hmm. But then I realized after like wrestling is only a part of what I do. Wrestling can be taken away very easy. If I blow my knee out or, you know, pop a shoulder out, which I've done both, (laughs) you know, like once wrestling goes away for a while, you very quickly have to find out what you are, who you are, you know, because people bank so much their identity on what they do. Yeah. And, you know, if I got laryngitis tomorrow and wouldn't be able to talk for three weeks, you know, I'd have three weeks of not being able to do what I love or do what I'm quote unquote meant to do. I would have to find something to fill that time. And then, of course, that can go longer and longer. And if, you know, for whatever reason, I woke up without a voice tomorrow, I would have to start this whole process again. Mm -hmm. So what I what I do advise people now, not like I'm some kind of life coach or anything, is just be comfortable in your skin. Find something where you can be comfortable in your skin without relying on your job as your identity. Yeah, that's a very that's, again, that's a double edged sword. Like, yeah, of course, this is who I am. And of course, 100,000 people listen to me every day on NCIFM. Yeah. But at the same time, if if they find somebody better than me or if I can't do the job anymore, who am I? I'm not NCIFM anymore. I'm mm. just Stefan. You know, so I have to be comfortable in my skin. Yeah. And I think that's the hardest part is finding something to make you comfortable in your skin. Not not necessarily something like exterior, like a job or a house or a car or whatever. Just more so who am I without anything? That's wonderful advice for anybody to take in. You seem very comfortable, like, in your own skin. Were you at times ever kind of just, like, uncomfortable with, like, your own identity and things that you were, like, struggling through or anything? Right. So I'll drop a bombshell on you. I was a heroin addict for a lot of years um, during wrestling and after wrestling. And it doesn't matter the drug I was addicted to. Addiction is is more of a full picture thing. It wasn't the drug that was causing the problem. It was me being insecure and uncomfortable in my skin to the point where I needed to medicate with something instead of blaming the drug. So many people 
do, like when you see on the news, it's like, well, we have an opiate epidemic. You have a, a mental health epidemic is what the problem is. Opiate is the medicine. The times where I, I wasn't comfortable in my skin, you know, I had the identity crisis. I had things that happened to me when I was a child. Nothing like abuse, nothing like that. But just I'll, it was 99 percent based on identity. Yeah. I had to medicate somehow because I was never comfortable in my skin. Like we had talked about at the start, doing the thing where I would grasp onto my wrestling persona in my real life, which is when I look back, it's so silly, but I was so uncomfortable in who I was that I had to medicate with something. So I medicated with drugs for a lot of years. And then when I got clean, um, I was 25. I stopped drinking. I stopped doing drugs. I stopped, you know, everything. I haven't had a substance in a while, but which, which I people often celebrate. And they're like, well, congratulations. Like, well, I shouldn't have been doing heroin in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? All that medicating led me to a place where again, being comfortable in my skin. Who am I? What, like, what is my job on this earth? What do I need to do while I'm here? And my son was already two and a half years old by the time I got clean. So the first two and a half years of his life, I missed because I had a mental health condition. You know, nothing was ever diagnosed. It was just a lot of trauma. So when I got to, when I got to be clean and I had to find my identity, it was a lot of who am I? Where do I belong? And through, you know, through treatment, I went to a treatment facility. You know, I did, I did the 12 step thing for a long time. And then not only that, going back to, you know, reconciliation and spirituality, I, I started getting in touch a lot deeper with who I was culturally. My grandparents um, are very involved in culture and, and ceremony and things like that. So I started going to sun dances and all that stuff. And, you know, even getting my spirit name when I was an adult, all that stuff was, was very integral in finding who I am, what I'm here for, and, and what I need to do in the future. Thank you for sharing that. That's yeah, uh, on the trajectory. You're here now mm-hmm. and you're in a wonderful position. So what advice would you give to somebody who was in, who would be in similar shoes? I learned this. I, I don't want to like get too much onto the to like the quote unquote 12 step thing. But yeah. I had a sponsor who was a great guy and he had a lot of years in recovery. And he uh, he would tell me that for people in addiction, nothing I could do for them. I can't lock them up. I can't chain them up. If they're not ready, they're not ready. However, if they are ready, keep trying. I relapsed 30 times before anything ever, you know, stuck with me. Mm-hmm. So if it's in terms of addiction, keep showing up, keep coming back, keep trying, you know, because there's no there's no perfect remedy. There's no cure. There's nothing that's going to make pop up and make you quit one day except you. If you make it, you know, four days and relapse, if you make it 30 days and relapse, you make it six weeks and relapse, show up the next day. Try again. Don't stop the coming back because that's what's going to defeat you. Uh, so if you had to explain, uh, I guess, reconciliation to, you know, a person who has no clue what reconciliation is, how would you explain that to them? Uh, in Canada's case, I know that there's <laughs> reconciliation that goes on all over the world, like in, you know, the Philippines and Australia and uh, South Africa, where a lot of indigenous populations were colonized and damaged in a long-term state. But I would say out of like Canada's perspective, I would explain to them that the indigenous peoples that were here first were um, colonized by other cultures, there was damage that was done, and then the colonizers never left. Because in a case like, um, there are countries in Africa where they were mm-hmm. colonized by the French, by the English, by the Belgian, you know, by the Portuguese. And yeah. then once the resources were gone, the colonizers left. Yeah. And they left the population with less resources and very damaged. However, that never happened here. You know, the colonizers stayed, and it continues on into, the, you know, the 21st century. Mm-hmm. So reconciliation to me would be both sides working together yeah. in order to reach a common goal. 
That would be my explanation. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Stefan Richard, for being on the podcast today. And uh, where can we find you on the interfaces of life? <laughs> <laughs> on the internet service? You can find me uh, ever six Stefan on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. I don't know if people use Snapchat anymore, but I'm still on there. Um, <laughs> you can listen to me. Uh, as of today, as of recording, I don't know where tomorrow will be, but today you can find me at ncifm.com from 1 to 6 Central Time. Uh, listen online. I'll be I'll be there Monday to Friday. Thank you so much, Stefan, for all your input today. Uh, this was a great show. So thank you, Sasha. That is our time, so thank you very much, and we'll catch you folks later. Welcome back to Mino Gandegan, the Good Voice podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. We just spoke with Stefan Richard. Be sure to listen in to his show on NCI-FM. Up next, our second guest is Dawn Lavand, former child actress, comedian, traditional singer, and harm reduction advocate. Dawn is an Anishinaabe Cree two-spirit Ikwe who grew up in the foster care system. She currently is a member of Red Threads for Peace and Woke Comedy Hour Collective. Welcome to the Minigondagan podcast today. I have two folks with us today. Uh, today joining us, we have Dawn Lavan and we have Zach Coffin. I am really excited to have them here. If you don't know who these folks are, Dawn Levan, uh, first of all, she is a hilarious uh, individual. She's an improv artist. She's a child star, uh, community drummer, and uh, she's here with us today. And Zach Coffin, which is her son. So he's joining us today. He's also a stand-up comedian, and he's also entering the seventh grade. I'm really excited to have you folks here today. How are y'all folks doing? Woo! I'm good. Yeah. You're all good. <laughs> so on this episode, our theme is identity. Identity is a big key to discussion within uh, reconciliations. Uh, if you guys had to identify yourselves, how would you talk about yourselves in that kind of way? I'm pre in Ojibwe. I didn't know that it was important to me to embrace my indigenous heritage until I was a young adult and until I created a family of my own. I'm also Cree in Ojibwe and huh. Newfoundlander. Newfoundlander. You're a Newfoundlander. Yeah, I really like shrimp. And <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, I don't know why, but I'm not good on comedy on like the spot. But like sometimes, like once a month, I get like a really good joke. Everybody loves it. <laughs> Carrot, just ride that on for yeah. me. So you're born in Newfoundland. I didn't know that. You're 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 from Newfoundland. Uh, when did you move over to Winnipeg? No, no, no. No, it's, no my oh. husband's a Newfoundlander. He's a Newfoundlander. Okay. So my husband uh, moved to to Winnipeg when he was like <laughs> nine months old. Yeah. And uh, I was worried about marrying a cousin, so I married a white guy. Okay. <laughs> That is very fair. <laughs> we are living reconciliation. So again, odds are 50-50, no chance at all. So one of the big things of this show, too, is reconciliation. So what are your both personal stances on the idea of reconciliation? Like, what does reconciliation mean to you? Zach, are you going to take it away? Well, it is a big word. I'm still learning. And, yeah, I'm still learning and watching what everybody else is doing. Mm-hmm. Try to take notes. Yes. As am I. I, I. I don't know everything about reconciliation. Anything that during this podcast, a lot of people have different views of point of it. So there's not one note that everybody has. Don? Uh, I would say reconciliation is probably a big word that gets thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. But I believe it's also an action-based word. Mm-hmm. So Canada apologized, but there also needs to be action behind that. Yeah. 
And I think a good starting place for people to have action around it is to have conversations with one another. And so I think it's really great that we get to have a conversation with you today about it. Thank you. I heard that you folks have a story about Toronto, and I would like to delve into that. Okay, I'll start. Okay, and then, Don will start. And then Zach will come in with his piece. Okay. All right, so I was raised in care as a permanent ward of the province. And I had a foster family that I was lived with for a very long time. And when I became pregnant with my son, I felt the need to return to my foster family uh, for support. And uh, I just, I wanted all the things that I had for myself growing up for my child. And that was grandmothers and grandfathers and aunties and uncles and all the different things that I had growing up. And uh, so I returned to my foster family and I didn't get the support that I thought I was, I guess that I felt entitled to get. And um, I guess I spent like the first five years of being a a young mom, uh, really having like a lot of self-doubt about who I was as a mother about whether or not I could actually be a mom. And then I was experiencing uh, like difficulties in my relationship. And my foster mom said that good people protect their children by sending them away. And you protect your child by them not seeing you go through hardships. And so at that time, my foster family had moved out to Toronto. And it started out pretty innocently, like I would send them out for the summer. My mom said that's something she did when she was young. And she explained got to experience the world was bigger than her backyard and so I wanted my son to have experiences that were beyond his backyard and I sent him out there for summers and then there was one year when I thought that maybe I wasn't going to stay in my relationship and I wasn't sure how that was going to look and so I sent him out and it was for an undiscernible long period of time. It ended up being about four months uh, before Zachary came home and somewhere along the lines it changed from helping support us go through a difficult time to possibly building a case against us as parents and keeping our son in Toronto instead of ever repatriating him with us. And we had to be very, very resourceful about getting him home in a way that didn't like alert the CFS authorities. Because one of the things that could have happened is that if CFS had been notified, then there was a risk that my foster family would have lost care of him and we would have lost care of him and he would have just become another ward of the province and it might not have been in Manitoba province it might have been Ontario mm-hmm. um, and so we were just super fortunate to be able to get um, our baby home without a third party intervention and I know that doesn't happen for everyone and like people can have nice things but not be nice people I had a small experience there and like at times like there'd be nice things but then at times it'll show just all for show I went to this reconciliation place or Uh, Okay, so when you came back. Yeah, when I came back, I wasn't really, um, like, I didn't know who to trust because, um, I didn't really know who I was. And since I was super young, I, when I went to school, I didn't know, but I was depressed. I had suicidal thoughts and I drew it on paper and I'm pretty sure a CFS worker came in. A social worker, yeah. Social worker. And that's when my mom got scared because they could have took me away, pretty sure, right? Or it's, it's not so much about I was scared about you being apprehended into care as much as I was that you were very young having suicidal thoughts and ideations and to the point that you were beginning to draw them out. It's alarming for anyone at any age to be going through a dark period like that. And so as your mom and as your family, your dad and I, we just uh, wanted to make sure that you had the support that you needed to have confidence in us as a family. And so 
one of the things we started to do was to talk, right? Mm-hmm. So we always made sure to create a space between you and I that uh, you could tell me anything and I wouldn't react to it, right? So I wouldn't get angry or upset or freak mm-hmm. out. I'd let you have your say and then I would let you know how it made me feel afterwards. Yeah, and that kind of helped me because then, like, it took me kind of a long while to, like, start opening up because I heard things that since at a young age, you can be either, like, manipulated or, like, taught into doing things. I thought I just, I trust somebody and then was told that it wasn't how it really was, so I didn't really trust anybody. And then, um, yeah, my mom took time with me and helped me. I started sharing a couple of stories of it, and it sucked. The more I got older, the the more I think about it and the more sad it was. So one of the things we did together um, to kind of anchor ourselves as a family again was uh, Truth and Reconciliation, um, I think ran for five years. And then there was a closing ceremony, and the closing ceremony, one of them happened here in Winnipeg at the University of Winnipeg. And I just thought it was so important for us, me as being like a former foster kid and him kind of being really close to being a foster kid, um, to go and experience that together. And what really stuck out for me at that event was um, an elder was standing up and he was talking about his experience in residential school. And he was sharing a memory of what it was like for him as a little boy. And uh, he said that he would look up at the stars at night and cry himself to sleep and wonder whether or not his parents were thinking of him. And I remember Zachary just putting his head on my shoulder and, you know, shedding a tear and being like, I know that feeling. I remember that. I did that. And just that my son could have, my son experienced feelings that an elder had experienced in residential school. And I had put him in the care of people that I thought were supposed to care about us. Not everyone who uh, is supposed to care about you necessarily has your best interests at heart. And I know that they're doing the best they can with what they have, but um, at the same time, it, it caused harm instead of causing growth and good stuff. And when I learned that that was my son's experience, then um, we started working really hard to <clears throat> create a sense of pride in who he was and help him create his identity as uh, as a mixed baby. So he participated in that march and he carried a little drum and he had uh, a drumstick that was from a program that I helped uh, create. And uh, we have a really beautiful picture of him and he's marching in the front of a whole group of women. And then I think uh, we finished that march at the Thunderbird House and Zach participated in an interview and he was just talking about how it's important to celebrate moments like that because we're not forgotten, right? And since then, Zachary has received his spirit name. My spirit name is Ozaswa Makus Nadisnikas, which also translates to Little Brown Bear. And what I was told when I was given my um, my spirit name was I'd receive medicine from a whole bunch of people. What I've learned is that medicine doesn't really have to be medicine, but also like could be teachings. So even negative experiences that you've gone through or endured or persevered through, there are lessons or teachings in them that uh, become medicine. Right now, what kind of advice would you give to um, you know, kids who are struggling with 
um, maybe their identity and maybe them feeling displaced. From myself, my advice would be uh, trust your intuition. Uh, it's this feeling in your gut or it's that little voice in your head that goes, wait a minute, because your intuition for me is uh, is my spirit. And so far my spirit has, has not led me to dark places or dangerous people. It's always been the one that's like, wait a second, think about this. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, if you find yourself in a group of people and it's not sitting right with you, then it's okay to step away from those people. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you step away from toxic people and it feels like you're alone, sometimes it's okay to be alone for a little bit, but um, don't allow those negative experiences to change who you are as a person. So don't allow it to make your heart hard or your spirit cold, but continue to find other like-minded and uh, like-hearted people. And, uh, and you can nurture that home fire again and it, it can, uh, you can learn how to tend it in a way that um, you don't burn yourself for the people you care about around you. So you're older, Zach, now. Mm -hmm. What would you say to yourself when you first came home? I'd tell myself that you shouldn't, you shouldn't always doubt yourself of what you think is right and wrong. Mm -hmm. I think you should take a chance, and if it's wrong, then correct yourself on it and try again. Wise words, wise words from the mouth of uh, Zach Hoffman. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being on the Minogon Dagon podcast today. Um, so thank you for listening to the Minogon Dagon podcast. Today we had with us Don Levan. She's a comedian. She's uh, an improv artist. And she's also a community drummer. She's also a really great mom. Just uh, <laughs> it's not a big secret. It's pretty well known. And we had Zach with us today. And thank you for listening today. Uh, my name is Sasha Mark. And we are out of here. Welcome back to Minogon Dagon, the Good Voice podcast. The show exploring reconciliation from an indigenous perspective. We just spoke with comedian Don Lavan. Be sure to check her out at Facebook.com under Don Lavan. Finally today, we are joined by our third guest, Cree activist Brielle Beardy Linklater. She is determined to become an agent of change. She made history of her own by becoming the first transgender woman to take a seat in Parliament, a moment she says was a huge honour. 2018 Pride Marshal and Two-Spirit Rights Activist. Welcome to Mino Gundagan, the Good Voice podcast. I'm Melissa Blackwolf Kixon, and I am here with Brielle. Welcome. Dante, hello. Thank you for having me here. Hello, my name is Brielle Beardy Linklater. I'm from the Nisitoyasi Cree Nation up north, just outside of Thompson. And I live here in Winnipeg, and I'm happy to be here on Treaty 1 territory. What does reconciliation mean to you? Reconciliation is looking at the ways that Indigenous people were screwed over, um, looking at the living conditions, looking at financial capacity to help Indigenous people. And we know that financial capacity could be a lot greater than it is now. I mean, there's we're a, a growing population in Canada and in our communities. Are they're, they're so heavily impacted by socioeconomic problems. And there's, there's, a, like, there's a lot that needs to be reconciled more than just, you know, we're going to uh, appoint some people to a council or an advisory committee. Those are all things that can be easily done, but until our people, you know, on reserves or in inner cities are seeing the direct like, result of that reconciliation, until they know that there's change, and until their lives are, lives are different, that's when reconciliation happens. For me, it's like, if you don't do, if there's nothing being done actually, to materially help Indigenous people, then it's not reconciliation, it's just rhetoric. 
<laughs> rhetoric, our favorite word in the indigenous community. Um, so how would you how would you explain or if you were to tell uh, another two spirit youth who is just sort of um, coming into into their identity, how would you explain um what being two spirit means and what it means to like what your role in the community is so two spirited people are those who embody both masculine and feminine and i am in the new i am northern cree so i have a different understanding of it and i feel like my masculinity is a gift from the creator because i use that perspective to understand men because some of us got to be out here for the man you know I think this whole white feminism era is kind of toxic to indigenous men and men of color. While we need to hold them accountable, I also feel like they're in, like deserving of support, second chances, and rehabilitation for whatever action or things we're calling men out for. Um, also, that femininity that I possess, it's something that I love about myself. Um, it, it, it's been a journey for me, and, and I would you know, encourage youth to explore that and in healthy ways where you're not doing the playing in mommy's closet to digging yeah. through clothes like the rest of us did. Um, <laughs> I, I, and it's, I, I would just encourage you just to be yourself and do it. This is the time that you got to be yourself. Um, there are spaces, go to those spaces here in Winnipeg, there are places like Sunshine House, um, Rainbow Resource Center. There's a lot of great places to go be, you know, uh, as unapologetically queer as you can be and you know just have friends close by you who are like-minded you know and just be fierce and to go down the streets voguing whatever you <laughs> whatever makes you feel um like yourself and my journey was you know all these people tell me that my femininity was a thing to be ashamed of but mm. i always just like embraced them like this makes me feel so alive why can't i just be and if there's anything that you can learn uh from me it's not to you know, shy away and rise to the occasion. Just be who you want to be and be your authentic self in a good way. Mm -hmm. When did you um, when did you start? Uh, when did you start, you know, coming out to to the two spirit community? Like, when did you start to feel like you were a part of of that world? When I started to be in touch with the Two-Spirit community, I would say it was just a little, little over a year ago. I've had the term Two-Spirit um, told to me by elders and other people, so it's not like I didn't know that I was Two-Spirit. I just didn't know what it was and what it meant in the con cultural context of what Two-Spirit meant. I just know that I'm different and that I'm Two-Spirit. Uh, and I never really knew what the history was and how I could be a part of that. And we're looking at a resurgence right now. We're a part of that resurgence. Mm -hmm. We're practicing our, you know, gender roles within this society and looking at how we can be two-spirit in every instance and how we can push, you know, um, back against that gender binary that we know that the colonizers brought over here mm -hmm. and have imposed on us. It's It's been like really gratifying to connect with other two-spirit people um sadie phoenix lavoy albert mcleod uh chance paponicus there's so many people here in treaty one who i just love and adore and their energy 
And there's so many different things that people bring and that they have and all this knowledge. Um, I have been friends with um, Albert McLeod for some time. Um, learned a lot from Albert. Um, Alma Gekkeepinus of Seiking was the one who actually really told me that and gave me some teachings and this was in 2013 so from that point forward I knew that I had a spiritual um, connection to this identity this was also my spiritual identity is what I'm trying to say and mm -hmm. I went on that journey of looking and looking in like inside of myself and what that meant to exist in the world with femininity and masculinity and it's really really hard to explain because we live in a, a society that's very patriarchal and likes to um, limit people's gender expression and creativity. Mm -hmm. But I would say that it's given me a lot of freedom and understanding. It's just such a simple, It's a really, it is really simplistic, but at the same time it's not because indigenous people, we just think on such a spectrum. We're not black and white, we're always growing, we're always changing our minds. We understand the world as it evolves mm -hmm. and that's how we should be and that's how I understand to spirit now. It's that, you know, it's this, role of learning to be comfortable with both and you know I for the longest time I've identified as a transgender woman but this you know two-spirit identity has given me something much more and it's created like a narrative where I like my masculinity I don't and I don't I will never fit into a cis woman um mold and I don't want to and I think a lot of trans women are subjected to that whereas I'm comfortable with the amount of masculinity that I am gifted with. Mm -hmm. So, and you've mentioned that that you're a Cree. Um, like, did you grow up um, being very immersed in your culture, you know, grow up with like the language, with the ceremonies, with the traditions? Or is that something that you've also had to sort of um, reestablish within your life? When I was growing up in the Nisichuai Cree Nation, I had a lot of elders, and I was, I had a lot of aunties who were spiritual. My mother herself, she smudged with us. She gave us some teachings, but because my parents were both um, residential school attendees, I think it really hindered them teaching us that culture. My mother spoke our language to us, so I can understand some of it. I can also speak it and sound like a great person <laughs> I can't carry on full-on conversations that's just not possible for me I haven't lived on the land for so long now and when I was growing up on the reserve there was a lot of teachings around me it, it depended on the person because not because everybody was affected by residential school mm -hmm. but differently and in my community there was um there was remnants of that culture there it started to disappear when we started to sign um, away our land and resources to play people like Hydro. And, you know, the land eroded. And with the land went to different teachings and places where our elders um, felt home. And we took that away from them. And we made our elders irrelevant. And, you know, they hold so much of those that knowledge. They're our knowledge keepers. Um, and I've always been very traditional in practice. Uh, understanding the land, respecting and honoring the earth, um, our elders, our youth, our children, and uh, like that's always been who I, I am. But for everybody else on that reserve, it's you know everybody's either displaced, um, they live with a level of dysfunction um, because of what they've been through. Through whether it's um, 
intergenerational trauma or directly being a part of residential school. We just, I just have to accept the fact that some people are going to always be dealing with like substance abuse and all those kind of problems that need to be t- like tar- targeted. But on reserve, it's like, where do we start? Like, how do we even talk about bringing back our culture when our people are already dealing with so much on our plate? And it's, it's, it's a very chaotic world. You know, at times it is peaceful, but within ourselves, it just I think that trauma does play a really huge part. Yeah. Um, what is I, I and we're coming to the closing of of our interview, but um, what what do you think would be um, you know, through through you know the truth and reconciliation? And sort of through the work that you do, which you hold many hats, mm-hmm. um, what is your ideal outcome? So when you're, you know, like when you're an old um, kookum who, you know, is what what do you hope to see change when when you're an elder? I hope to see youth being empowered to practice their culture. And I hope to see them also being allowed to practice um, political power through an indigenous lens. You know, we can't have reconciliation until there's full returning of our, you know, political power to indigenous people, um, returning of land and resources, and the government paying indigenous people and organization and nations for occupying their land, for extracting it, you know, reparations are owed to our people. (laughs) And reconciliation is a part of that process. It is understanding that Canada has a very problematic history with its indigenous people you know within the there's so many indigenous nations trapped within canada who deserve freedom from it and the freedom to um have leadership in their communities and there's so many nations out there and we can't speak for all of them i can't speak for all of them as a indianu person but i can speak for the people of my nation my nation because that's where I belong to. And my nation is one of the most... Um, Northern Cree people are very proud people, and they're really <laughs> strong. You know, I grew up with those very forward, you know, thinking values and being just very stern because that's just who we are as a nation. Um, but, you know, I can only speak for the Cree people, you know, in that from that perspective and that understanding. There's so many other nations out there who are deserving of their own voices, not to lump indigenous people all together because you've spoken to one indigenous person doesn't mean that you've spoken to them all. And I like to make such a big distinction because I'm a res girl. I was born on, like I wasn't <laughs> born on the res, but I was born in my a home territory in Thompson and then grew up on the reserve. Like I'm a res girl, you know, on a mission. I'm on a res girl on a mission to change the world and <laughs> it's 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 important to know your roots and your history and you know I, I i differentiate myself from urban indigenous people not to put that on anybody but it's it's so different when you've grown up on the land and you've seen things differently it's just it's like two different worlds honestly where everybody on reserve they're like they're out there on the land they're close to it. even though it's still colonized it's still much different and out here mm-hmm. nobody knows what it's like to be on the reserve you would never be able to imagine it would like you have to be involved in the community there and here it's kind of different there's like not much of a community it's yeah. very it's very man-made it's very um i don't know how to describe it but the city is really it's a, such a, it's such a strange environment to me 
Mm-hmm. And for youth who um, grow up and sort of and and would identify as um, ur- urban indigenous folks, um, what advice would you give to those youth who? Um, that would be a part of their identity struggle is not growing up on the land, not growing up in their culture um, and sort of, you know, not feeling like they feeling like they don't belong um, to a community because they're disenfranchised from, you know, where they may have come from or where their people may have come from. But then not really feeling like they belong, you know, within this this giant urban um, community. What advice would you give to those youth? I would say take back space, make those spaces. You're on Treaty One territory. This is your land. Um, it is a really difficult conversation, and I don't know if I have the answers to that question. But it's not to put shame on anybody who hasn't grown up on the land. I feel like as an indigenous person who's grown up on the reserve, I've taken for granted that the the land itself and a lot of us do because we're distracted and we're fighting with each other and it's not this isn't the colonization olympics there's no right or wrong way to be indigenous it's practice your culture when you can it's there for you ceremonies are there for you it's your it's learning those that how to have that balance within yourself it's like there's a time and place to do things and to be an indigenous person, you got to figure out which, um, in which way that you're going to do that. Because, like, you know, at the end of the day, I'm coded as indigenous. People know that I'm indigenous. You can see it in the way that I look and how I appear. Um, but it's more than that. It's like understanding that indigenous, to be indigenous, is it's a way of life to be indigenous to Turtle Island. It's a big part of it is respecting the land all around you. Our people, um, we're, most of them are nomadic. Um, Go see the land. Go be a part of it. Or like your ancestors walked all around, <laughs> all around here, and you know it is always looking for that place to call home. But you know, our people were constantly moving with um, animal herds. Yeah. Um. Do it like they knew the different parts of the land. Some people did actually stay in one part, um, one part of whatever. But you know, it's learning that history and making that peace within yourself. I can't tell you how to be indigenous. I can only tell you what my experiences were Mm -hmm. and how you can, you know, how like take back culture. Cause you know, I'm in the new person starts with, well, what, what is my lineage? What, what, Mm -hmm. you know, finding, starting there, but don't fractalize yourself. Don't hurt yourself along the way. I have settler, um, like I have settler, heritage as well. I have German heritage and I don't let that define me. It's like, you know, a lot a lot of our people were born out of, you know, a problematic wedlock or, you know, mm-hmm. country those country lives. Yeah, yes. I I would say that I came out of that too. So yeah. don't let the things like that tell you that you're not indigenous because like we're we're gonna disappear and I think people would like for indigenous people to disappear. It's like, no, let's practice our culture, let's be accountable to our indigenous communities and let's grow and love, share and practice the things that are gifts from our ancestors because those things were not allowed to be practiced for a very long time. So it is up to us to take that back and to practice it. It's our right. You just gave oodles of of advice and information. And um, I really appreciate your voice on this podcast. So let's say goodbye. Thank you again, Anas Mithnan. 
Miigwech Brayal for being on Minogundagan, the Good Voice podcast. Welcome back to Minogundagan, the Good Voice podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. We just spoke with Brielle Beardy Linklater. Be sure to check out her profile on the CBC website. Miigwech to all of our guests on this episode, the third in our series. Thank you for sharing your stories and your thoughts on a subject that should be on every Canadian voice, reconciliation. We hope that you've enjoyed our conversations today and will tune into future episodes as we engage in more thought-provoking conversations about reconciliation. We'll close off our episode with a track from Nehewak. This is Sonambulist. Check out more of their music at nehewak.bandcamp.com. Minogundagan was produced on Treaty 1 territory, the original lands of the Anishinaabek, Nehewak, Ojikri, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. 
Our executive producer is Alyssa Blackwolf-Kixon. Our associate producer is Sasha Mark. And I'm your host, Tim Fontaine. Our theme music comes to us courtesy of Boogie the Beat. Check out more of his brilliant work at soundcloud.com forward slash Boogie the Beat. The interstitial music is courtesy of Bloom. You can hear more of their songs at bloom14.bandcamp.com. We would like to thank the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the University of Manitoba's Office of Indigenous Achievement, the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, the University of Manitoba Students' Union, and UMFM 101.5 for their support in the production of this series.